Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. How are we doing, Crosslink? Pretty good? Yeah? I didn't hear the universal symbol for I'm doing good. You know what that is, that, that right? That's, whoa. Yeah. How you doing, Crosslink? Yeah. There we go. That's what I'm talking about right there. We're doing really well. I am so glad to be here, to be back, to be uh, given an opportunity to celebrate with you. Uh, when my staff and elders in uh, New York were asking my plans for the weekend because I had invited in their former pastor uh, to preach at Salem, uh, they asked me where I was going to be. I said, well, I'm going to Virginia to celebrate a miracle. And they looked at me kind of funny, and I said, that's, that's the only way I can describe it. I'm going back to Virginia to celebrate a miracle that God allowed me to play a very small, small part in being a part of. Um, because 10 years ago, we, this church should not have been here any longer. I mean, 10 years ago, uh, this property should have belonged to the fairgrounds because it should have been sold by the bank to the fairgrounds, and, and uh, Crosslink should never have existed by all measurable standards and by all metrics you could possibly imagine, there is no reason there should be a church at 4904 South Valley Pike right now. There's no reason because of, of all the, the difficulties and uh, oppression and attacks and the things that had happened leading up to 10 years ago. But God chose for his glory and by his sovereignty to do a miracle at 4904 South Valley Pike and sustain a remnant of people through a very dark and difficult season, and today we have a chance to look back and say, isn't God good? Amen? He has been good to us, and it's appropriate. It's appropriate. You know, some may wrestle with this question, are we celebrating the works of man? No, we're not. What we're doing is we're remembering the goodness of God as we take a moment in this season to do so. You remember the Old Testament. How many times did the Old Testament saints get reminded, remember Egypt, remember your deliverance from Egypt, remember the Red Sea, remember what God has done so that you can trust him for what he will do. And that's what we're doing these three weeks. And it's my privilege to take a small part here in the middle. You got to hear from a personal hero of mine, Pastor Randy Spencer last week. And then you'll have a chance to hear from my best friend and your pastor next week about the next season of ministry. And so I get to take care of the middle portion of your celebration. And for that, I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Haggai. The Old Testament book of Haggai, chapter number two. Haggai chapter two, we're gonna look at verses one through nine together. And this morning, I've been given the encouragement and assignment to talk about a renewed relationship and renewed uh, connection and surrender to our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in order to do that, I wanna talk to you this morning about change, about change. Change is an opportunity that God gives us to renew our commitment to his glory and to his work in and through us, and we're going to discuss that today. The people of Israel were in a very, very pivotal season of change, much like you at Crosslink are in a very, very pivotal season of change, where we appreciate and celebrate the past, but we know God is not finished with us, and so we need to turn our attention even further to the future based off of what he's calling us to be and to do as a local church. That's where Israel was in some ways. In order to set the scene for Haggai chapter two, I need you to go back with me. Go back with me about 2,500 years. And when you get back about 2,500 years, go to the city of Jerusalem and here's what you'll know and experience. 2,500 years ago in the city of Jerusalem, 
Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire have come in and they have destroyed the temple. They've sacked Jerusalem and they've taken thousands upon thousands of Jews captive and taken them back to Babylon and their exiles. That's where the the temple is. That's where worship among God's people was at the time. 2,500 years ago, they've been sacked. Their temple has been destroyed. Now, I say that, and, and I don't want you to get the wrong idea. When I say the temple has been destroyed, I mean Solomon's temple has been destroyed. I'm talking about the temple that was built by Solomon, paid for by King David. I'm talking about the temple that was the envy of the world was destroyed. People came from all over the known world to marvel at and to experience and to take in and to learn from Solomon's temple. It was the absolute pinnacle of architecture from 2,500 years ago. The world had never seen anything like it. It was the envy of the nations and the religions of the world. That was Solomon's temple. And in the process of the Babylonian conquest, they came in and they destroyed Solomon's temple. They laid waste to the city of Jerusalem and they took thousands upon thousands of Jews back to uh, Babylon where they were held in exile. But God was good. He actually arranged things on the world stage so that the Persians would then take over the Babylonians' empire and the Persians were more friendly to the Jews and the Persian king actually sent a remnant of Jews back to Jerusalem with the responsibility of building back the temple of God. So that's where we are in the book of Haggai and much of the minor prophets. The remnant have returned from exile. They've come back to Jerusalem, the city that had been laid in waste by the Babylonians 50 years prior, and they started working on the rebuilt or rebuilding the temple, what we call our second temple or the beginning of the second temple period. When they came back and got to work, some things happened. They got discouraged. They got frustrated. They got divided in their loyalties and divided in their belief about what should happen next. And so after starting their work, things got tense and things got contentious and they eventually walked off the job. The Jews walked off the job. They'd been, they'd been brought back from uh, Babylon or Persia. They had come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And after a few months and a few years of working on the temple, they gave up and they went home. And for 16 years... They had a mentality of me first. They came back to do what God had called them to do, rebuild the temple. But for 16 years, they had a me first mentality. Everybody say me first. Me first. If you're a parent, you've heard that phrase many, many times. Have you not? Many, many times. When you go to the ice cream store with your kids, what is it? Me first. Me first. I go first. I order first. I get what I want first. When it's the water slide, what do you hear the kids say? Me first. Me first. You go to the doctor and he wants to give them a shot. Not so much, amen? Not quite so much on the me first with the shot situation. But here, you, that's what you've got. The mindset was me first. From, from the time they walked off the job, God's temple didn't matter. God's word didn't matter. God's will didn't matter. God's glory didn't matter. What mattered to the, to the Jews from that point when they walked off the job of the temple was me first. Everybody say me first. Me first. That's what it was. So for the next 16 years, what do they do? For the next 16 years, they built their own houses. They made them really nice and luxurious. They built their own agenda. They built their own wealth, and they got themselves very comfortable. 16 years, it wasn't about God's will. It was about their will. It wasn't about God's house. It was about their house. For 16 years, they had a me-first mentality, and that's where we see Haggai step into the situation. 16 years after they'd walked off the job, there's a prophet named Haggai, and he walked into the situation, and he began to call the people to repentance. 
Haggai began to call the people to repentance and tell them this is not right. You ought not have a me first mentality. You should have a God first mentality. Everybody say God first. God first. That's the contrast to me first. It's me first or it's God first. It can't be both. It's got to be one or the other. So Haggai comes to the people and say it's time to put God first. It's time to make his will first. It's time to change. Everybody say change. Change. Change is scary, is it not? Change is uncomfortable, isn't it? Change is one of those things that nobody likes to go through. Nobody likes change. You forget that I know you, right? Like, you know, I spent seven years in Harrisonburg of my life, okay? Don't look spiritual at me. We don't like change, do we? We don't want change. We're not excited about change. Change is scary. Change makes us nervous. Sometimes it's exciting, but usually change is humbling, as a, a philosopher of 500 B.C., Heraclitus says, the only thing that is constant is change. When we're thinking about change, though, we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Honest about the fact that sometimes change is a good thing. Can I give you some examples of change being a good thing? One of the areas I think change is a good thing is in medicine. Can we all agree that a change in medicine is a good thing? How many of us in this room have some condition that 150 years ago we would have died from by now? Like if 150 years ago, we wouldn't be alive. Right? I'm, I'm there. I'm one of them. You know, not only that, my father was diagnosed with diabetes. And several hundred years ago, he wouldn't have lasted very long, even long enough to have me. So many of us wouldn't even be here if it weren't for change. One of the key areas of medicine development that I'm grateful for is the development of anesthesia. Anybody else here grateful for anesthesia? If you've ever had surgery, I promise you are. When I was pastoring here, I broke my leg. Many of you remember that. And I had to be on crutches and preach from a stool for a month and a half. And, and uh, not only that, I had to go have surgery. And so they had to install a plate and seven screws in my leg that's still in me today. I am a bionic man. Impressed, aren't you? But I'll tell you what I appreciate is right before I was going in for surgery, there was an anesthesiologist, actually a friend of mine, Dr. Martin, who put his uh, anesthesia on me. And so the entire surgery of them cutting me open and, and drilling holes in the bones of my leg, I was asleep for all of it. Can I get a witness? Amen? asleep for every last moment of it. You know, 200 years ago, if they had to do surgery, they would say, here, take this shot of whiskey and bite this belt while we cut out your spleen. Can anybody say Amen. Medicine developing and changing is a good thing. We're very grateful for it. So, so thankful for it. I think of other moments like uh, I got a picture of my boy Charlie up on the screen. That's Charlie, man. He's about a year and a half right there, but he's four now. And Charlie is wearing one of the greatest developments of all time. That is disposable diapers. Can I get a witness? Yes, disposable diapers are a good change. If without those, then you spend three and a half years of your life just swimming in your child's... Never mind. That's what happens. Disposable diapers are a good change. There's other good changes. I'm thinking of changes like, uh, like the way we listen to our music. How many of you ever listen to music on one of these? Show of hands. All right, very good, very good. I, I mean, it's a, it's a turntable, vinyl records. But some of the drawbacks to vinyl records are, are several. One is that if you scratch the vinyl record, then you listen to the same phrase of the same song 100 times in a row. Because it just goes, and you've got to go fix it, right? So these things don't travel well. They never would work in the car, and they're big, and they're bulky, and they're fragile. And some of you hipsters are like, well, I like it best now. No, you don't. I promise you, okay? This is nowhere near as good as what we have now. We graduated from the, from the vinyl records to the eight-track. Anybody here have an eight-track player? Anybody? Those were some kind of special, weren't they? My father, had, my grandfather had a, a truck from the 1970s, an eight-track player in the dashboard, you know, and he had his, uh, he had his Willie Nelson uh, eight-tracks that he loved to listen to. But the eight-track player was tough because, first of all, those tapes were like bricks. I mean, 
just like bricks. And you had to, you couldn't just put them in. You had to like, I mean, you remember? You had to hit them to go. And if they wouldn't work, you pulled them out and you take your foot and bam, and just kick them in and get them to go. And it went in far enough. And then, and then it may play if it's the weather's nice outside. You might get the truck to play the music. Notoriously unreliable. And then we graduated to the cassette tape. For anybody under the age of 40, it was a little plastic thing about this big. And it had spools of ribbon, and on the ribbon was the music. But the problem with the cassette tape is that ribbon sometime would fall out, and then you had to get the tool to put the ribbon back. What was the tool? The pencil. That's what you had. You take a pencil, put it in the little gears, twist it until it went back. But then sometimes you'd make a mistake, and you'd pull out your, your tape from the, from the dash of your car, or from the, from, the, from the cassette player in the car. You'd put it on the dash. You'd go into Walmart. You'd come back an hour later, and what has happened to that tape? Melted everywhere. Garth Brooks will never play again because that tape is just disintegrated into thin air. And then what we thought when I was a teenager, the greatest invention in the history of humankind was the CD, the compact disc. I, you're selling a CD now. I mean, what an incredible. Crosslink's got their own CD. CDs were amazing because with a cassette tape, if you needed to find your song, you had to do that little fast forward, rewind, fast forward, rewind, fast to get to the right song. Not on a CD. No, sir. You pushed a button and it went to the song you wanted. How glorious was that? We loved it. Problem with CDs, though, is you had to keep take care of them. CDs got scratched really, really easy, and then and then you lose them, and then your buddy would steal them, and all kinds of things would happen to CDs, and it just wasn't a good deal. And then all of a sudden, we came up with a new thing called an MP3. That was awesome, right? MP3. MP3 was incredible. The problem with MP3 is you had to carry this little thing around everywhere you went. It was notoriously fragile. You could bust it up or, or the charge would go on it or, or maybe you're carrying an iPod and try to go jogging with an iPod and it's too heavy. It's like pulling your pants down. So now you're jogging, listening to music, holding your pants up at the same time. It's not really going well. But finally we got to where we are today, which is what? Streaming music. That's where we are today. You want to listen to a song? You log on to Spotify or Apple Music and you got any song that's ever been recorded in the history of, of, of musical arts and is right there on your phone to listen to it anytime you want to. Change is a good thing. If you're with me, say, uh-huh. We're scared of it, but change can be and has been and continues to be a very, very good thing. The most visual illustration I can give you of change being a good thing is this right here. Come on now. Do you remember when you used to have this device sitting on a desk in your hallway that was the size of a bowling ball and weighed the same amount? And you had to pick it up and put your finger in some holes and twist it. Remember that? A, 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 a rotary, how many of you had a rotary phone in your, okay, I asked this question in New York and like five people ever had a rotary phone in my church in New York. You guys know about these rotary phones. You'd twist them and then it'd go, and it would go back around. And for some reason, you did the right numbers and then somebody would pick up on the other line and you're talking to them. It was amazing, but the thing was enormous. And you, some of you think, well, I'd like to go back to that. I don't want these things anymore. Okay, well, tell me, how did your rotary phone do with taking pictures of your kids? Not well at all, did it? How did the rotary phone do when you needed to find directions to the restaurant? Not, how did rotary phone do it playing all the music you wanted to listen to? Not very well at all, unless you wanted to call a friend and they put it up to their eight-track player and all of a sudden you're listening to music. How much sense does it make? No, change can be and has been a good thing. It's a very good thing. And here's what I want you to see from the book of Haggai and what I want you to see today as we talk about transitions. I want you to see very clearly that when God is first, the future may be different than the past, but it will always be greater than the past. 
When God is first, the future might be different than the past, but it will always be greater than the past. That's what we have as a promise from God, and that's what Haggai came to tell the people of God in Haggai chapter 2. So if you're physically able, could we stand together as we read from Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Scripture says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who, would, who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we don't like change. We like things to stay the way they are. We like to be comfortable. We like to know and anticipate our days. We like predictability, and we enjoy safety. But God, we know as followers of Jesus Christ, you're calling us to constantly, constantly renew our relationship and commitment to you as we trust you for the future. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us today to, to be open to and willing to embrace a God-first mentality instead of a me-first mentality. And God, I pray in Jesus' name that you give us the courage to have faith and confidence moving forward, knowing you are in absolute control. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Thank you very much. God first means embracing change as he leads. God first means embracing change as he leads. If I'm going to put God first in my life and you're going to put God first in your life, we must be prepared to embrace the change that he calls us to make. And it's going to be constant and continual. And I want to show you from Haggai chapter 2, three vital steps to embracing change as God leads. And you can write these down. They're in your worship guide. You can fill in blanks as we go. But I want to show you three essential steps to embracing change. The first step is this. If you're going to embrace the change that God calls you to, to make in order to make sure he is first, you must first deal honestly with the past. Deal honestly with the past. In verses 1 through 3, this is the setting. Okay? The temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C. The children of Israel had been taken into exile for 50 years, okay? 50 years later, they get re released back to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God, to build the second temple, okay? So 586 B.C., 50 years of exile. Now they're back in Jerusalem ready to rebuild the temple, but something happened and they quit the temple, they stopped building, and for 16 years they did no work whatsoever on the temple. They built their own houses and did their own thing. Now Haggai, the prophet, steps into the situation 16 years after they had started and quit building the temple, and the prophet Haggai steps up with a message. And the message he calls them to is a message of repentance and a recommitment of themselves to do what God had called them to do. He was an invitation from Haggai, really a commandment from Haggai, to stop putting themselves first and instead put God first. 
So now they're beginning to work again, right? 586 BC, 50 years of exile, started working on the temple, then 16 years of laziness and me first. And now here they are again. They're starting to work on the temple. They're starting to rebuild the temple. They responded to Haggai by saying, okay, we're in, we repent, we're ready to build the temple. And then all of a sudden there's a familiar feeling on the job site. A familiar feeling on the job site. All of a sudden the excitement wanes. The commitment is lackluster. People aren't really optimistic and excited or encouraged by the work. And so Haggai refuses to ignore the elephant in the room. He refused to let the people quit on God once again. And he refused to allow the people to go back to a me first mentality. So Haggai walks on the job site in Haggai chapter 2 and tells everybody, stop working. Let's talk. Stop working. Put down the shovels. Put down the mortar. Put down the block. Put down the timber put down the saws and the hammers, come over here and let's talk. And they gathered up. And Haggai asked a question. Haggai stands before the people and says, hey, uh, show of hands. How many of you remember Solomon's temple? Now remember the timeline, right? 586 BC, the temple's destroyed, 50 years of exile, 16 years of laziness. So do the math, 66 years ago. At this time, it was 66 years prior that Solomon's temple had been destroyed. So Haggai steps before the people and says, how many of you remember seeing Solomon's temple? Now, you got to figure that the math, it had to be the oldest among them. It had to be those at least in their 70s that would have any recollection whatsoever of Solomon's temple. But he stepped up and asked, show of hands, how many of you remember Solomon's temple? And a few hands went up here and there. They might say, well, I remember my mother taking me to Solomon's temple where we we sacrificed and we, we prayed and we worshiped with the priest in that glorious temple. And I, I would imagine conversation probably started breaking out about how glorious it was. See, Solomon's temple was the envy of the world. It was massive and it was overly ornate. It was the kind of place that people would come from other nations to come and see and observe and, and really just gawk at the splendor of this amazing temple of Solomon. It was, the, it was the, the crown jewel of Israel and the envy of the world. So the people that remembered it, boy, they remembered it as very special. Sometimes memories can even be embellished, you know what I mean? Like the old adage that when you played high school football, but you're telling your kids about it 30 years later, the old adage is, the older I get, the better I was. Anybody been there, you know? I played left bench, but now my kids think I was a star quarterback, you know, that kind of thing. The older I get that, I'm, I'm sure some of that was going on with the temple too. They were not only telling how amazing it was, but they probably embellished a little bit about how great it was and how wonderful it used to be and how amazing it was. And Haggai stepped into it and realized that there was this great deep affection among the oldest among them of the great and incredible temple that Solomon had built that had been destroyed 66 years prior. Which begs the question, what was it 16 years ago that made him stop building and rebuilding? And if you lay Haggai over Ezra, here's what you learn. Ezra chapter 3 verse 12. 16 years prior, the scripture says that many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, that's the first temple, what did they do? They wept aloud with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid. So 16 years prior, when they had tried to rebuild the temple, some of the older crowd that remembered the previous temple looked at the footers, the foundation of the new one they were building, and what they noticed was this. It's nowhere near as big as the old one. 
They started looking at some of the stonework and some of the timbers and some of the, the riches and the gold and the jewels that would be put in this new temple. And they're remembering the old temple and they're thinking, it's not, not going to be as big, but it's also not going to be as beautiful. It's not going to be as tall. It's not going to be as amazing. Foreign dignitaries are not going to want to come to this temple and ask questions about it. It's nowhere near as glorious as the one that was destroyed. It's not going to be as luxurious. It's not going to be as expensive. It's not going to be as, as over-the-top, ornate, and elaborate. So 16 years prior, they began to rebuild the temple only to realize they were building something that in every way was inferior to the old temple, and they got discouraged and they quit. They gave up. Basically said, our greatest days of worship are behind us. Why bother? Our greatest days of being the people of God are behind us, let's just give it up. Our greatest days of service to God are over. Let's give it up. So now 16 years later, they're working again, they're getting going again, but Haggai senses there's that same tension, there's that same fear, there's that same belief that the greatest days of serving God are over. So Haggai walks into it and says, okay, guys, gather up, put down the shovels, put down the, ball, the, 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 the hammers and the nails, gather up for a second. Hey, let's ask a question. How many of you remember, I mean, 66 years ago, how many of you remember the old, te old temple? And then he asks a second question. Do you see it? How does this one you're building now compared to that one? You ever been in a meeting where you knew the truth, but nobody wanted to say it? You ever been in that meeting? You're like, somebody needs to speak up and tell the truth right now, even if nobody wants to hear it. It's a hard truth. It's the elephant in the room nobody wants to, nobody wants to talk about. You know what I mean? Like you've been in that meeting. I've been in that meeting. You know, it's a plan. Your team has a plan, but there's no way it could work. But nobody wants to say it can't work because people are so excited about it. You know, like it, you've been in that meeting. I've been in that meeting. That was the meeting that Haggai called. He says, how many of you remember? Everybody raised their hand that remembered. Okay, how do you feel about this temple compared to that one? And all of a sudden, everybody's looking at their shoes. They don't want to talk about it. Haggai jumps right in the middle of the awkwardness of the moment and calls for a response. How do you feel about this new temple compared to the old one that you remember? And the answer came back very clearly. We believe that our greatest days of worship are behind us. We believe our greatest days of following God, our greatest days of honoring him, our greatest days of service and ministry are past. They were at a moment of significant change. What they didn't believe is the main point of this message and the main point of what Haggai is about to tell them. And that is that when God is first, the future might be different than the past, but it will always be greater than the past. They didn't believe that. They, be they believed their future was nowhere near as great as the past because the size and the splendor and the beauty of the temple were very, very different. Let me tell you a story of this in my own life. When I was 14 years old, I was a pastor's son at a church in North Georgia, and uh, I was a member of a youth group that took a camp retreat in the summertime of 1996. And I'll never forget going on that retreat. We went to this retreat center in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I don't know how this happened. I don't know who swung this. But the retreat camp that my youth group went to in the summer of 96 was a five-star resort. Seriously, five-star resort for a bunch of teenagers to show up and, and just like, and destroy it for a week, right? Five-star. The rooms were amazing and immaculate. The food was like gourmet and incredible. Not only that, the resort had a, a water park with water slides with no, didn't charge you a dime, just enjoyed it all day long. Not only that, there was an arcade. The arcade games didn't even have places to put your quarters because they were free. You could play arcade all day long. And we went there and we had an incredible week. But it wasn't just about the food or the rooms or the arcade or the water park. We had a great week because God spoke to me that week and really called me and a group of my buddies to follow Jesus. And we sold out to Jesus in that week. 
the, the pastor preaching was, was dynamic and the band leading us was, was amazing. And, and we really just had an incredible week where a group of my buddies now, we really committed ourselves to following Jesus, to memorizing scripture, to praying together, to sharing the gospel. I mean, we had a life-changing kind of week at that camp. Like many of your teenagers had a life-changing kind of week at the camp you sent them to this summer. The only difference was we were at a five-star resort. <laughs> So we had a fantastic week, okay? We came back from that retreat. Man, I was on a spiritual high. I knew that God was speaking to me. I knew that I was walking with Jesus. Things were going well. But I got back to Georgia, back to the church where my dad was pastoring, back to my home church. And within a few weeks, things really took a turn for the worse. Within a few weeks, the youth pastor resigned and, and nobody knew why. Just left the church. And the youth group started falling apart. And before long, all those buddies that we were gonna you know, charge hell with a water pistol together, <laughs> They weren't anywhere to be found. They left the church too. They weren't walking with Jesus and they weren't coming. Now remember, I was the pastor's kid. So if nobody showed up, I still had to show up, right? And so I was showing up to youth ministry basically by myself. Have you ever tried to play Chubby Bunny by yourself? <laughs> if you need to know what that means, just ask one of the teenagers. They could tell you. But it was not a good season of my life. I was discouraged. I was upset. I was really questioning some things. But here's what I knew. I knew that God had spoken deeply to me at that camp the previous summer. In North Carolina at that five-star resort, I knew that God had spoken clearly to me and had given me a word that I was to follow him and serve him no matter what. And so the entire time as things are going bad, here was my thinking, can I just get back to camp? If I could just make it back to camp, if I could just get back there, then I could rekindle my faith, I could get stronger in my faith, and I could keep serving God, stay devoted to God, and keep moving forward in my faith. If I could just get back to camp, then everything everything would be fine because I believe God stayed there and why wouldn't he there was a free water park you know then the news came down from the church leadership they can't afford that camp this year church can't afford to go back to it so they said it's okay don't worry about it instead of going to a five-star resort in North Carolina we're going to send you to a cabin on the lake in North Georgia 20 minutes from here I was ticked I was ticked because what? Because I believed that that was the place to meet with God. It was at that resort, at that camp. This camp didn't have a water park. This camp didn't have an arcade. This camp didn't have good food. Even on the brochure of this camp, the food looked disgusting. And that's the brochure. I'm looking around going, I've never heard of this preacher. I've never heard of this band. I don't know anything about it. Not only that, none of my buddies are coming with me this year. I was convinced. I was convinced that my greatest days of worship were behind me. But I showed up to the cabin in the woods on the lake with a bad attitude. You ever had a bad attitude? I know most of you, and I know you've had a bad attitude. I, I, I've ha I had a bad attitude. I showed up there. I'm like, I don't like this. This isn't going to work. It's not going to be what I need. I just need it. Where, where is the arcade? <laughs> That's what I needed to know. God spoke to me. Do you trust me? Of course, the answer had to be yes. But in the context of that week, it was that week in the summer of 1997 that God called me to the gospel ministry. It was in the context of a place and a time that I thought could never be better than the time and the place that I'd been before. And in the context of that week of worship, God spoke to me and called me to the gospel ministry. And I can tell you without hesitation that without God speaking to me and calling me in that week of that youth camp, there is no way I moved to Harrisonburg, Virginia from Atlanta, Georgia in the fall of 2009. And there's no way I'm standing here before you today. And there's no way I'm serving and pastoring in New York City right now. I'm telling you, in that moment, I had to come to grips with the principle that when God is first, the future might be different than the past, but the future will always be greater than the past. 
And we're tempted to think the same way. We look at the book of Acts and we think, why can't church and worship be like the book of Acts? Or we look at the, we look at the great reformers and think, why can't the preachers be like Luther and Calvin and those great reformers? Or we look at the churches around the country and Billy Graham's. Why can't the preachers be like the Billy Graham's of the world? And we begin to lament our present state while believing that the greatest days of worship and ministry and the greatest days of mission are behind us. And it leads us to the belief we might as well give up because it'll never be like that again. I love how Haggai doesn't stop and smack them around. You know what I mean? Because that's my tendency. I don't know, Pastor Matthew's a much more encouraging pastor than I am. But when I get this kind of thing, I start smacking people around. I start, I mean, I start preaching fire, hell, and brimstone and calling everybody to repentance. You know what I mean? I, 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 that's, that's my personality. But I notice Haggai doesn't do that. Haggai encourages them. He calls them to consider. And so if you're going to change, you're going to embrace change, it's time to deal honestly with it. Deal honestly with it. Honestly address the fact that you have come to believe that your greatest days of worship and service are behind you. Some of you are at a moment of change right now. You're about to send your kids to college, you know? And so you're living in this environment where you're never gonna be tucking them into bed every night the way you used to. Or you're never gonna have the same kind of dinner table every evening. You're not, you're not gonna have the same kind of relationship with your child that you used to. Some of you are the child. Some of you are, have moved to Harrisonburg to go to JMU or to go to EMU or to Bridgewater, and you are that. You, you're never going to have that same life that you once had because you have left home and things are different now. And you can have the tendency to believe that the past is never going to be repeated and the past will never be enjoyed again because the future is bleak. But here's what we know about God. When God is first, the future may be different than the past, but it will always be greater than the past. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes, celebrate with us together. Amen. That was the word God gave to Haggai for the people. So the first step, if you're going to embrace change, as God leads, put God first, is deal honestly with the past. Secondly, trust God with the present. Trust God with the present. Let's take a look. Verses 4 and 5, Haggai calls out the king, tells him to be strong. He calls out the high priest, tells him to be strong, calls out the people and tells them to be strong. This is a common command. Moses said this to the people in Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. The Lord your God, he will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua said it to the people in Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. David said it to Solomon, which is funny because the, the, what the people were remembering so fondly was the temple of Solomon as the good old days. But the good old days almost didn't happen because Solomon was discouraged and almost didn't build the temple. And his dad, David, had to come along and say, I'm going to help you. It's going to be okay. You can do it. And so Solomon had to hear those words as well. Be strong and courageous and do it. Do what? Build the temple. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The apostle Paul told the Christians at Ephesus, finally be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. John James Montgomery Boyce said it this way. It is the presence of God that makes God's people strong. Did you see that? The presence of God that makes God's people strong. And that was the promise of Haggai. My spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. Boy says, in ourselves we're not strong, but we can be strong and we can be equal to the task because God is with us. His strength, in his strength, we can be courageous. So that's why he said to the governor, be strong. To the priest, be strong. To the people, be strong. Everybody say, be strong. Strong. We're called to strength. Why? Not because we're so great, but because he is so great. He appeals back to Egypt and says, remember what God did for your ancestors to get them out of Egypt? They were enslaved. Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. But God came through. God was faithful. You can be strong. 
he tells the people, you don't have to worry about the square footage of the temple because it's not so big as the old temple. You don't have to worry about the relative plainness of this temple that you're building. You don't have to worry about the size and the splendor of the first temple. What's most important about the temple is not the size. Follow me, church. Follow me, church. What's most important about this temple is not the size of it. What's most important about this temple is not the beauty of it. What's most important about the temple is not the height of it. What's most important about the temple is not the amount of rubies and gold and silver and, and precious stones in it. What's most important about the temple is, does God live there? And if God lives there, that's all that matters, and it is the most glorious place on the face of the earth. Does God live there is the question about this temple. God is in your midst. Be strong. And he is, and you can be confident that God is in your midst. Be strong. Everybody say, be strong. Be strong. Why? Because you're so great, so powerful, so wealthy, so beautiful. No, be strong because God is with you. He's with you. We together? All right. Number one, deal honestly with the past. Number two, number two, trust God with the present. Trust him that he is there. And trust him that when God is first, the future will be different than the past, but it'll always be greater than the past. Number three. Number three, and I'm finished. Believe God for the future. Deal honestly with the past. Trust him in the present and believe him for the future. Throughout this narrative, this prophecy, the prophet Haggai was calling his people to trust what God says over what their eyes were telling them. See, the people were looking around at what they were building and realizing it's not as big, it's not as glorious, it's not as beautiful, it's not as overwhelming as Solomon's temple. That's what their eyes were telling them. Their eyes were telling them that their greatest days of worship were behind them. Their eyes were telling them their life would never be the same. Their eyes were telling them that the future could not possibly be as good or better than the past. And Haggai comes to him and says, don't trust what you see. Instead, believe God for the future. And even in this passage, there is a word to you and I. Because when he says he's going to shake the nations, it's a reference to the final judgment that even we, 2,500 years later, have not yet seen. We have not yet seen God shake the nations, the seas and the dry lands the way that he promised to. He will, and he's described in the book of Revelation, and we look forward to that one day. Now, we do know what happened with that second temple, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But even the word from Haggai to the people 2,500 years ago is a word to us as well. Don't trust what you see. Trust what God's word says. If you're with me, say, uh-huh. Don't trust what it is you see. Trust what God's word says. In the context of calling them to trust, Haggai says something that seems totally ridiculous at face value. Totally ridiculous. You got your Bible open still? Look at verse 9. Chapter 2 and verse number 9. He says something that I honestly think he got. I think they laughed at him. I think they blew him. I think they were not completely convinced at all that this was true. Listen to what he says. Haggai 2.9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Did you see that? He tells the people building this temple that will be a fraction of the size of the old temple. These people building a temple that would be nowhere near as big or impressive as the old temple. Nowhere near as opulent. Nowhere near as beautiful. Nowhere near as overwhelming. He looks at them and says, the latter glory, meaning what's to come in this temple, will be more glorious than the former glory. So what God is going to do in this temple 
will actually outweigh and overwhelm and be far beyond anything he did in the latter temple. They think that's crazy. How's it possible? How could this temple that's smaller and less expensive be anywhere close to, let alone past, the glory of the former temple? Here it is. Can I tell you? Y'all lean in real close. Everybody listen real close. I'm, gonna, I, I'm not supposed to be shouting. I almost lost my voice this summer, and the doctor said I got to rethink the way I'm preaching. You talk about change. I've been doing this for 22 years, you know, and he just said, you've been abusing your voice for so long, you're getting older, and you're going to have to adjust the way that you preach. You're just going to have to. And I, I'm like, I didn't is there a pill I could take? Is there something like something else? I don't want to do, do that. So I'm not supposed to be yelling anyway. I'm not, and my wife is shooting daggers at me over there right now because I've been shouting for two solid sermons. I preached four sermons every Sunday here for about a year and a half, two years, and, 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 and just doing that for all this time. So I'm trying, I'm trying so, so lean in real close. Everybody, everybody I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this just very carefully. How? How is this smaller temple going to be any greater than the bigger one of the past? Here it is, ready? About 500 years after they built that temple, 500 years after they rebuilt the temple, about 500 years later, guess what happened? There was a guy named Simeon. He was hanging out at the temple because God gave him a promise. Do you know know Simeon's promise? Here's the promise God gave Simeon. Here's what he told him. He said, you will not die until you've seen the Messiah. 500 years, 500 years. 500 years after they finished the job that they were called to do to build the second temple, about 500 years, Simeon's hanging around the temple and he's been given a promise, I will not die until I see the promised woman. There's another woman hanging around that same temple about 500 years. Her name was Anna. She was a prophetess. And she had been prepared by God to be the prophetess that would proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And the reason this temple is more glorious than the first temple is because in this smaller temple, this this newer temple, this second temple, this less opulent, less wealthy, less overwhelming temple, it's at that temple that a a Jewish carpenter named Joseph showed up with his wife named Mary about, about eight days after they'd given birth and they walked into this temple to have this baby dedicated. And that guy named Simeon had been hanging around because he'd been given a promise. And the promise that Simeon would give him is that he would see the Messiah. So for, for, I don't know, years and years, Simeon had been hanging around the temple looking at babies, looking at babies, looking at babies. That one's, not, that one's too ugly. That couldn't be the Messiah. And this one over here, this, one, this one's got cross-eyed. No, that's not the Messiah. And looking at all the babies that came forward, and none of them fit the bill. So all of a sudden, God in his spirit gave Simeon a word when Mary and Joseph walked up to dedicate this baby Jesus. He said, I can die in peace because I've seen the consolation of Israel. Why is the new temple more glorious than the past? Because of square footage? No. Because of jewels, no. Because of gold and silver, no. The second temple was more glorious than the first because it is in that second temple that Jesus, God, come in the flesh. The Son of God showed up, and right there in that place, he was dedicated. Not only dedicated, the Bible says that later on, about 12 years uh, later, he got separated from his parents, and he found his way into the temple, and he sat among the scholars of the day. And in that temple, the boy Jesus, at 12 years old, confounded the scholars of the day. The second temple was greater than the first, not because it was bigger than the first, but because the Son of God showed up there and taught there and was dedicated there. Not only that, the people began selling, buying and selling and and began using the the, the temple as a den of thieves and robbers. And so Jesus showed up with a cord and began driving out the money changers and said, my house shall be a house of prayer. It was there in that temple that Jesus taught the word of God and the people received it from the mouth of God, the word of God, from the mouth of God, because Jesus himself was there. It was in this temple where blind eyes began to see, where lame legs began to walk. It was in this temple where 
where God did miracle after miracle after miracle. The second temple was greater than the first, not because it was bigger than the first or more wealthy than the first, but it's greater than the first because Jesus was there. He was there. That's not the best. Something even better. Because it was only a few years later when that baby who was dedicated and that boy who confounded the scholars and that man who drove out the money changers and taught and healed in the temple, he was arrested. And he was drug out to the outskirts of Jerusalem. And he was hung naked on a Roman cross. And there he shed his blood and paid the price for the sins of the world. And the reason this... (laughs) The reason the second temple is better than the first is because in that second temple, as Jesus was dying on the cross for the sins of the world, in that second temple, the veil that separated the holy of holy places to the outer courts, the veil that separated the presence and power of God from his people, the veil that stood between God and man as Christ was dying on a hill outside Jerusalem, inside that second temple, that 18-inch wide veil was ripped in two from top to bottom reconciling God and man that's why the second temple is greater and that's why we can say with Haggai with God being first the future may be different than the past but it will always be greater than the past God is first amen amen celebrate with us together church praise God so what are you facing what's your season of change mine is I got to figure out how to preach different What's your series of change? Are you a student who showed up in Harrisonburg? Your life will never be the same. Are you a parent dealing with the loss of kids going off and heading off to college or out into the workforce? Are you a a person who had an incredible experience with God but have come to believe your greatest days of worship may be behind you? Maybe you're in a job situation where the the boss has come to you about a promotion. You've got to figure this out, what it means for your family and for your career. Maybe you're in a job where the days of getting promoted and being in charge are passing away and you kind of feel like you're being pushed out. Maybe you've built a business, but the time is coming to hand that business over to someone else to take it to the next level. Maybe your meeting with the doctor this week didn't go well. And now you're learning to live with a different diagnosis plan for care. What's the change you're wrestling with right now? Everybody in this room is wrestling with some kind of change. Every single person here has got some kind of change you're dealing with. And you are tempted to believe that the future will not be greater than the past. You're tempted to believe this can't be good. This won't be good. God may be finished with me or he's forgot about me or for whatever reason he's not doing what I want him to do. And you get to say by faith, I'm going to put God first. And with God first, the future may be different than the past, but it'll always be greater than the past. Thinking of Peter, lifelong Jew, met and followed Jesus, saw the resurrected Christ, preacher on the day of Pentecost, de facto leader of the disciples. What happened to Peter? Peter one day was told that it's time to start eating unclean stuff. Peter's whole life had never never eaten anything except what was allowed for in the Old Testament law. And 
in a dream, God said, take and eat these other types of animals. And Peter said, no, I'd never eat what is unclean. And God said, don't call unclean what I have made clean. Take and eat. All of a sudden, his entire life was different. By the way, that's my favorite chapter in the Bible because it was at that point it became godly to eat bacon. Amen? Peter had to make a change because everything was changing. I'm thinking of also the moment the disciples realized Jesus really was leaving. He wasn't just talking about leaving. He was really leaving them. He was really headed out. Jesus was really leaving. And they're thinking, this is going to be horrible. What did Jesus promise? Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. When he promised the Holy Spirit, what did he promise? He promised that the Spirit inside you is actually going to be better than Jesus beside you. And with the Holy Spirit's power, you're going to do greater works than we even accomplished together. And they did some pretty awesome stuff. Think about it. Lazarus is alive now, fed 5,000. But Jesus said to his disciples, once you have the Holy Spirit, you'll accomplish more through that than you ever accomplished with me. And the disciples weren't convinced. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 we, we should go with you. We, why don't we just go with you? We could go with you. Let's just let us come with you. They didn't want to experience life without Jesus. But what did they have to believe and know? They had to believe and know that God is first. The future may be different than the past, but it'll always be greater than the past. What's your change? What's your situation? Let's pray about it. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, in Jesus' name, we are a room full of people facing change individually, in our family, in our careers, in our church, in every aspect of our life. We have to, we have to experience change, and change can be scary and intimidating. So, Lord, I pray that whatever the change is that's happening in the lives of people across this room today, that they would, we would surrender our fears to you and we would by faith embrace embrace the fact that when you're first the future may be different than the past but it'll always be greater than the past because we know you're not calling us to something or to some place or to some job or to some behavior we know ultimately when you're first you're calling us first of all to yourself as we walk with you we can be confident in our future because you are the future Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm going to invite our prayer team to get in place and be ready to receive anybody that may respond because I'm going, to, I'm going to give us a moment to process what we've heard. And if you're going through a change right now that has you nervous or change right now, you're not really sure what the future may hold. You're going through a change right now and you like prayer, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to come and be prayed for either by these prayer team members that will be standing across the front or if you want to come to the altar and kneel or just make an altar where you sit. You're going through a change. And you're tempted to believe, you're tempted to believe that the future could never match the past. It's an opportunity for you to be prayed for and pray with someone who's going to help you because they love Jesus and they love you. And these individuals ready to pray with you are ready to be in your life for this moment and believe God with you. It's time to deal honestly with the past, trust God in the present, and believe God for the future. So I'm going to pray when I say amen. We'll stand to our feet. These prayer team members are here and available to you. Feel free to use them as Scott leads us in a song. Feel free to come forward to pray with and be encouraged. Lord, in Jesus' name, help us. Help us to trust you. Help us to deal honestly with our past. Help us also to, to trust you in the present, but also help us to believe you for the future that you have for us. And know that when you're first, the future may be different than the past, but it will always be greater than the past. And this we believe and know because of Jesus. In whose name we pray. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon.
God bless you.